Well, good morning, everyone. So to begin our time together today, we are going to read out of Luke 1. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 1. I am going to go ahead and read the first 25 verses, if my voice works. (laughs) So, all right. Many have undertaken to compile a narrative about the events that have been fulfilled among us. Just as the original eyewitnesses and servants of the word handed them down to us, so it also seemed good to me, since you have carefully investigated everything from the, from the very first, to write to you in an orderly sequence, most honorable, honorable Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abiah's division named Zechariah. His wife was the first was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and they were serving as priests before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter into the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing in the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and his name will be John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And when he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteousness. To make ready for the Lord a prepared people. How can I know this, Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man, and my wife is is well along in years. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands at the presence of our God, and I was sent to speak to you and tell you about the good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day of these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled by the proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah, amazed that he stayed so long in the sanctuary. When he did come out, they could not speak to him. Then they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He was making signs to them and remained speechless. When the days of his ministry were completed, he went back home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and kept herself in seclusion for five months. She said, the Lord has done this for me. He has looked with favor in these days to take away my disgrace among the people. Thank you, Ellie. Good morning again, everyone. I actually offered for Ellie a free pass on this week because I said, you know, this is going to be a long introductory reading. I said, so if you don't want to do this one, it's okay. And she's like, no, it's fine. It's all good. Yeah. So thank you, Ellie, for that reading. And as you probably have guessed, um, we're 
going to be studying further in this text. I just wanted that for really an introductory to have all the context of the first uh, 25 verses of Luke chapter 1. Because today we begin our celebration of Advent. And it's a very exciting time of year for me. Um, I love the season of Advent. And I, and I started thinking about it this week. I was like, you know, if you had talked to me, because I didn't really come from a traditional church background. I'm a Calvary Chapel kid. And so we didn't have a lot of, well, we have traditions now. But back when I was a youngster, we didn't do a lot of traditional church things, um, at least in the church that I grew up in. And so if you had came up to me and said Advent, I would have thought Christmas, but that probably would have been the extent of it. I wouldn't have really thought too much more about what the word Advent means or what it means for us as a church to celebrate it. And so just to begin our time this morning, the word Advent means arrival. Um, the most basic understanding is that it means arrival. And so for Christians around the world, the season of Advent refers to the four weeks leading up to Christmas, where communities remember and celebrate the arrival of Jesus and join together in the hope of his ultimate return. We'll talk about this in a little bit, but it, it really has this connection of the already and the not yet. When we celebrate Advent, we see this has already happened. Jesus has come as a human being. He died on the cross. He rose again on the third day. He has saved us from our sin. But we also are still in an anticipation. And so we can share with a lot of the Christmas stories that we see in Scripture around the Nativity, around the Incarnation, because we too live in this tension of anticipation. We're longing and waiting for Jesus to return again. And so Advent for us has not only an opportunity for reflection, but it has this unique opportunity to remind us of what we are anticipating, what we're looking forward to, not just where we've been and where we are, but where are we going? What is the Lord going to do in the future? And so Advent is a joyful season. And I told our crew as we started planning for Advent back in October, and I started talking through the different uh, texts that I, I'd like to, to study through in these four weeks. And as we started talking more and more about just Christmas Eve service uh, in October, I said, you know, I really want to be joyful this Advent season. I want to celebrate the joy of the Lord. I want to celebrate that this was a joyful entry of God into our world as a human being and that we are joyfully expecting and awaiting the return of our Savior. And in that, even that phrasing, the season of Advent has to be recognized as a season of waiting. And for us, when you talk about waiting or patiently waiting, it's not something that I think, well, I would never feel comfortable at, at any point in my life saying, I'm really good at patiently waiting. I don't know about you guys, but I'm not great at patiently waiting for something. You know, we, we live in an Amazon society. And I'm not talking about, you know, the jungles. I'm talking about, like, I order something, and I'd like it drone delivered within the hour. You know, and they're like, dude, it's a couch. <laughs> I don't care. Find a way. Drop it. You know, whatever you have to do. But you guys, as we think about the season of waiting, as we anticipate the arrival of Christmas Day, how much more exciting is something when you've had to wait for it? When there's anticipation for it, when there's an excitement that builds. I mean, the kids are just about ready to explode. On Christmas morning and I've already blown up you know I'm still one of those people that like 5 a.m. on Christmas morning I just sit straight up in bed I, I still get excited one of my kids him who shall not be named told me he's like yeah I'm not really excited about Christmas this year and I said him so you know it's one of my boys He's like, I'm, it's Thanksgiving's more my thing I love Thanksgiving but I just really don't feel that excitement I'm like I am going to turbocharge you like we have to get excited for this it's my favorite time of the year 
It's the most. (laughs) You guys, as we anticipate the arrival of Christmas Day, we're given a unique opportunity to reflect on the longing of the ancient world as they anticipated the entry of the Messiah. And we're given a a powerful reminder that we're still in waiting today. We're anticipating the new heaven, the new earth that will be ushered in with the establishment of the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Amen? It's an exciting time. It's a fun time. So let's loosen up the joy muscles. I'm not going to make you do jumping jacks, but we need to be excited about this. As we begin our time, I want to pray, and and this is why I love taking Advent and the season of Advent a little bit more of a traditional approach with four Sundays that lead up to Christmas Sunday, which this year it's on a Sunday. Um, I want to pray that the Lord would really stir us up for this, that he would excite us for this season in a really refreshing and unique way. I don't want us to settle into another Christmas, more shopping, you know, and like, and the same songs and Bing Crosby ringing out over my home. Like, I really want us to celebrate this. I want us to think about the Advent in a whole different way. And so, I'm going to pray that over you. Because as we begin these studies, I, I really want to see the Holy Spirit to not allow us to pass this season by. To not get so caught up in the busyness that we miss the anticipation of it. That we appreciate it in a real way. And that we actually take time to settle ourselves down and think about it intentionally. That we be overwhelmed by his joy, his peace, and his comforting encouragement that we get to celebrate Jesus in a very special way this time of year. So would you pray with me? Lord, I just ask at the onset of these messages that are focused on the Advent season for a refreshment for your body. Lord, would you refresh us? Would you fill us with your joy? And would that joy, Lord, as it says in your word, become our strength? God, I pray that we would not be ashamed to be excited. Lord, may it not be said of any of us, from the youngest to the oldest, that excitement is immature. Lord, excitement is maturity excitement and anticipation jesus of your return is our rightful posture and lord we just recognize that sometimes we give in to pessimism and lord i want to pray by the power of the spirit that you would ignite in us a revolution of optimism that we would see everything that's going on in our lives right now and see it through the lens that our savior is coming that he is going to return for us lord Give us a sense of the weight. And as we'll look at this morning, Lord, would you humble us? Beneath your strength, your power, your protection, would you humble us that we are created in your image? And Jesus, because of you, we are the sons and daughters of the King. God, thank you for that reality. Inspire us, encourage us, awaken us this morning. We ask it all in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Luke chapter 1, you should already be there, verse 26. I'm going to read down through verse 38. We're not doing the whole chapter this morning, don't worry. Verse 26 says, as it's continuing on after the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah, verse 26, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of a greeting this could be. 
Then the angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with the man? The angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And consider your relative, Elizabeth. Even she has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless. For nothing will be impossible with God. See, I'm the Lord's servant, said Mary. May it happen to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. The world of the Jews at this time was a very tumultuous place. You wouldn't call it a time of peace. Herod the Great had been made king of the Jews by the Roman Senate, even though he wasn't Jewish. He was Idumean. That means he was an Edomite, and that's helpful for you Bible students because you know how difficult that would be for the Jewish people to have an Idumean king ruling over them. That was horrifying for them. Not to mention who Herod was as a person. He was an able ruler, but he was brutal. He was suspicious. And he had that mix that we see so often of brilliance as well. A brilliant architect, brilliant designer. But one could argue that he was also insane. The Roman world was harsh. The Greek culture surrounding and penetrating into the Jewish life was idolatrous. It was sinful, and it was all around them. They couldn't escape it. It was in the midst. It was walking in the streets with them as they walked down their town squares, as they went about their businesses. It was pressing in all around them. You could not escape it. Heathenism and sin were confronting them at every turn. And in the midst of a time that the people would describe as dark and probably pretty bleak, Gabriel appears in the temple and he speaks to Zechariah the wonderful news that he and his wife are going to have a baby in their old age, which is really like resonates with like Abraham and with Sarah and says, despite your age, you're, you're going to have a baby. Isn't that exciting? Your prayers have been heard, Zechariah. And with tones that resonate with Abraham and Sarah, Zechariah then explains biology to the angel. Right? I don't know if you know this. I am old. <laughs> right? And it's hilarious to me because, it, you know, he tries to tell the angel, you really don't understand who you're talking to, I don't think. And the angel says, oh, yes, I do. And because of your unbelief, you're not going to be able to speak until your son is born. And so he is a mute until the birth of John, nearly a year. And John becomes this man that we refer to as John the Baptist. He's the forerunner. He's the one that would come before the Messiah and prepare the way for him. He's a child that's filled with the Holy Spirit from a very young age, from the womb. I don't know if you noticed that. But in Luke 1.15, it says that inside the womb, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's unique. 
That's special. And I think it will really pertain to our message next week as we talk about Mary and Elizabeth's interaction and you see the response of John the Baptist to Mary appearing before Elizabeth. He freaks out. He does a little dance. I know some of you gals are like, yeah, my kids have done that. I think this one was unique. I think there was something about it. I don't know if it was three, four, six, eight. I don't know what he was doing, but Elizabeth's like, whoa, he's pretty stoked to see you. About six months later, after Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the temple, sent by God again, and this time not to the temple, but to a home in Nazareth. You could not ask for a more opposite situation. Seeing the region of Nazareth, seeing not only the the area that it's in and, and knowing that the people there, most of them were not very well off and knowing that Mary and Joseph, if you look further in the scriptures, when they came to the temple, they brought what poor people would bring to offer. They were not rich. They were not well off. And so you go from the beauty of the temple to the simplicity of a humble poor girl's home. Alfred Edersheim said this so well, he describes it beautifully. It was not in the solemn grandeur of the temple, between the golden altar of incense and the seven-branched candlesticks that the angel Gabriel now appeared, but in the privacy of a humble home at Nazareth. He meets Mary in her home. He meets her there. God can meet us in the sacred and in the simple. God can meet us in both places. I think some people look and they're like, yeah, just religious stuff. Like, ah, it's just not my thing. God can meet us there. God can meet us here on a Sunday morning. But he can also meet you in the privacy of your room when you're all alone. And you know what? It's interesting. When I've gone to Israel in the past and I've prayed at the Western Wall, as, as so many Jewish people are there praying because it's the place where they feel they are the closest to God. The western wall is right below and up against where the back of the temple would be. In the Jewish mindset, that is as close as they can get to the Holy of Holies to pray. That's why they pray at the western wall. And what's unique about it is when you're there, every time I've been there, I've laid my hand on that wall and I've prayed the same thing. Lord, it is so special that I get to be here and pray to you here. And thank you that I can pray to you wherever I am. That he is just as powerfully present wherever we go. Because our God not only meets people in the beauty of the temple as Zacharias serves him in his presence, but he meets us in our room. He meets us in the humbleness of our home. He wants to be close to us. He brings his word to us there. It's here that the advent of our Savior is announced not with fanfare, not with high production value fog machines, but just in the humble room of Mary. I'm not saying that stuff is sinful. I'm saying that God can use anything that is prepared for him. And so, I don't know why that made me emotional. Um, (laughs) Just laugh at me. (laughs) Thank you. I think it's because for so much of my life, I felt like I needed to put on a performance for God. Instead of say, here, O Lord, find a home with me. Come to me and meet me here because my heart is ready for you. He can meet us just as powerfully there as he can when we do all this serving for him. And for anyone who's here that feels like God is far from you, humility is the answer. 
because he is near to those who are humble and brokenhearted. He is near to us when we're low and we're in that place. Here in the humble home of this humble young gal, God sends his angel to greet her warmly and graciously. And Gabriel says, greetings, favored woman. Greetings, you who are favored. The Lord is with you. Some manuscripts add, blessed are you among women. And even if that's an addition to the original text, it's certainly implied by Gabriel's statement. It's certainly implied. You are favored by God. Notice how Mary responds to this statement. Look at verse 29 carefully. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Deeply troubled. Now, this verse gave me some trouble because as I'm reading this, it just kept popping up. Why was she troubled from such a warm, favored greeting? It's such a, you read it and it's like, this is not threatening. This is not threatening at all. This is kind and generous and, and an angel in my room of all places. Let me get my undies off the floor. You know, like you, I didn't expect you, you know, like it's what, what a situation to be in. Hey, remember that one time Mike was teaching about Advent and you talked about Mary's undies? So this is an encouraging and an exciting greeting. This is an exciting thing. And it's what's amazing about the statement to me is that she was deeply t- troubled by this statement, not the fact that an angel was now in her room. I would be the opposite. If anything's going to trouble me here, a stranger in my room would win. But it's what he said that troubled her. It was the statement that troubled her. Wondering at the greeting, not the angel. Why would she be deeply troubled? I puzzled until my puzzler was sore. I kept thinking and thinking like, why? Why is she deeply troubled by this statement that she's favored and empowered by God? And the answer was really simple. Humility. Humility is the answer. The reason you would be deeply troubled by a statement of that nature that you are favored and that you are blessed by God is if you did not believe yourself to be worthy of it. Humility is the answer to why Mary was so troubled by this. Mary was favored because the Lord set his undeserving grace on her. Not because she had earned good standing. That's the essence of humility. Recognizing that we have done nothing to earn God's favor and being deeply troubled reveals a humble lack of expectancy when God reveals his overwhelming grace and favor. The designation of being favored, even highly favored, bewilders and surprises her because she's humble in heart. Jesus himself is our perfect example of humility. God becoming a human, fully God and fully human, and in the same breath, humble and gentle. An all-powerful being, humbled into human form, possessing all that strength and power, but humbled to be one of us, to be tempted in every way as we are, as the Hebrews, the text in Hebrews would say. So many would desire... And by this, I'm accusing myself. So many would desire to be the most favored by God. Who wants to be God's favorite? Come on. 
Every single one of us is like, <laughs> I got, Jonah in the back in the sound booth is like, yo, right here, want to be the most favored. I, I, for me, it's like, yeah, I want to be God's favor. I want to be right there with him. I want to be the one that he wants with me all the time and, and these types of things. But here's the problem, Jonah, I'm not attacking you here. Isn't the heart of being the most favored steeped in pride? Isn't that desire steeped in pride? You're like, no, because it's God. It's God, I, I, I want to be with, I want to be his favorite. No, we're not talking about wanting to be with him. You want to be his favorite. Think about this. Isn't the heart of humility to see others favored by God? Conviction alert. How often do I excuse or justify my pridefulness in wanting God to do what I want because I desire to be the most favored so much so that I don't even consider what's best for other people. I don't even consider what would bless them. That I would want something like this for somebody else. It's hard for us guys to really fully understand, I think, a desire to be pregnant with the Savior. But I think for you gals, you have a unique way to, to connect with this and say, isn't what a blessing for God to say, I'm going to bring the Savior of the world into this world physically through you. What an overwhelming thing. But what kind of a heart would expect it to happen to anyone else except to you? That would want it for anyone else except you. Because your heart is humble. Because you know yourself. I think that connects for all of us. James reminds us in Prover of Proverbs 3.34 when he says in James 4.6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. I think that we need to relook at our pride often and consider what it means to long for God's favor over others. What kind of a servant's heart will we have when we recognize that God has given us his grace and his love and that he has saved us, but we want him to work more powerfully in others' lives than even our own? That we want him to favor others, that we long for that. It's not because God plays favorites. Don't take that to be the case here. It's not God likes other people more than he likes other people. James clarifies that as well in his letter. He says, God doesn't play favorites, guys. But when it shows his favor in this sense, it shows that God is going to specifically bless Mary in this way. It's a powerful statement of God's love and affection. How often do we get deeply troubled by God's favor towards us? Has that ever deeply troubled you? What an appropriate response for a humble person to have. When God sends an angel to declare you are favored, that God is with you. If you're like me, as I looked at this text, I thought I would feel encouraged. That I'd be stoked if Gabriel showed up and was like, got a job for him. Like, yes, you do. I'm ready. Right? Excited. It's awesome. But the, <laughs> you know, just saying that, you're like, wow, that's, that's terrible. It is. But the, the more I studied it, I saw my own prideful heart and wanting to be favored over others. I saw my own heart. I really am after my own desires. I even want God to work in me in ways that I don't want to see him work in others. When I see him work in others, I'm like, I could have done more. <laughs> That's not humility. Humility is why would God favor me in any way? 
Why would God choose to use me? It, 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 would, it would get me low. It would humble me, maybe deeply trouble me. In asking this question, we come to the most beautiful truth that's so much more encouraging when we think not only about the announcement that Gabriel's bringing to Mary, but as we anticipate the return of Jesus still, as we feel the tension. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it so well. It's applicable to both situations. I put the whole quote up here. It's huge, but it's two slides and it's worth it. The coming of God is truly not only a joyous message, but is first frightful news for anyone who has a conscience. Ah, let that one burn for a second. And only when we have felt the frightfulness of the matter can we know the incomparable favor. God comes in the midst of evil, in the midst of death, and judges the evil in us and in the world. And in judging it, he loves us. He purifies us. He sanctifies us. He comes to us with his grace and love. He makes us happy as only children can be happy. Let that set. He continues, we have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas that we no longer feel the shiver of fear that God's coming should arouse in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only the pleasant and agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect that the God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. I can't read that without getting shivers. That the God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. These are mine. I think in her humility, Mary understood this better than I have in the past. And I hope that that's not my future. I hope for all of us that we can grow in our understanding of what it means to be favored by God and that it would trouble us because we are humble. Because we recognize that we are not worthy, but oh my goodness, are we ready to serve in whatever way the Lord asks us to. She'll say that at the end. So Gabriel tells her after it says she's troubled in verse 30, don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Gabriel says, listen, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. You don't need to be troubled. God knows what he's doing. When God chooses to use us, he knows what he's doing. Now listen, he says in verse 31, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Uh, Gabriel announces that the prophecies of the Old Testament that the people have been waiting for, Isaiah 7.14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. All the promises God has made throughout his word about the Messiah are going to be fulfilled within her body as the Holy Spirit conceives and God the Son will grow as a human within her womb. Let that sink in. Can you imagine hearing that? Can you imagine somebody saying that to you? An angel saying, so here's what God's about to do. And most young Jewish people would know these verses would understand and be anticipating the coming of the Savior. Yeah, it's going to happen inside of you. You know what's so fascinating to me about Mary and her situation as Jesus grew inside of her, very, very unique, is that we get to experience something 
on an every moment of everyday basis as Christians, as those who are saved by Christ, that we are not very aware of, and that is that the Holy Spirit of the living God lives in us. How aware of that are we? That the Holy Spirit is alive and working in me. Just as Jesus, in a very unique way for Mary, was going to grow and live within her. How would you have treated Mary? If you knew that she was carrying Jesus, say you had the time machine that we all joke about, you know, you get in your DeLorean and you, that's for the older people, and you go back, you go back to this time period and you, you actually get to interact with Mary. How would you treat her? Gently? You probably wouldn't be really harsh. Why? What, would you treat her differently than other gals? I think you would. I think I probably would. Why? Uh, Jesus is in there. Right? I love, the, I love the little ones in the church. Like, I love the babies. They don't like me very much sometimes. They scream when they see me. But, like, I, I love all the little kids running around and stuff. But come on, this is Jesus. Right? In the womb. And you would probably be like, kid gloves, careful, big step here, big step. You know, like walking her up and like everything. Don't you move a finger. I will get the jug of milk. Woo! Not good. You know, like I would, what would we do? We would be so gentle and tender and careful, wouldn't we? How do we treat each other? When the living God is inside of every single believer, the Holy Spirit indwells us, do we treat each other that way? What's the difference? There is no difference. We are interacting with sons and daughters of the king here. We are interacting with people who are indwelt with the living God. Why is it any different? Why do we treat each other the way that we treat each other? We ought to love one another to the moon and back, as the little kid's book would say. We ought to love each other more than 3,000. That's, that's an endgame reference. I apologize for that one. You guys, this is... This is serious. No wonder Jesus over and over and over again during his physical life here called us to unity. Called us to love one another, to walk with one another. He says, the Spirit's coming. God is going to be in you. And you ought to love each other just like this. I think Mary provides this perfect example for us to remember. How would we treat her knowing Jesus was inside of her? How do we treat each other knowing the Holy Spirit is living in each other? Church, let's calibrate to that. You're going to find a very loving, very caring, very warm church. And not just in this room, but all around us if we start loving each other that way. God is in you. And I want to love you, not just because you're created in his image. I want to love you guys in a way that's special because I recognize that God is in you. This is special. We have a special bond as the church. We have a special fellowship. We are family. Even in this text, there's this already not yet aspect of the prophecy. If you look at verses 31 through 33, just very quickly, because we can't miss this. It says this, Gabriel says, you're going to conceive and give birth to a son. You'll name him Jesus. You'll be great. He'll be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and the kingdom will have no end. 
And you could try and tie some theological lines to this, but here's the truth of it. Jesus has to come back for this to be fully fulfilled. We're waiting. There's a not yet aspect to this prophecy, much like there is in the Old Testament. Some people get really confused when they read Messianic prophecies in Isaiah, or they read them in Jeremiah, or they'll read them in, in the Psalms, and they're like, well, we haven't really seen him do it. Well, there's parts of it that we have, but in God's eyes, it's all done. In God's eyes, he says, just as assured as it was that Jesus would come and be born as a human being in Bethlehem, he says, just as assured as that was going to happen, so is his eternal reign that we're waiting for now in this tension of the church era. It's an exciting time to live. Never, ever, ever wish that God had put you in a different generation. Never wish that God had put you on this earth at a different time period. You are exactly where he wants you. And so am I. Let's embrace it. Embrace and say, this is the time that God has called us to be on this earth in this age of the church. What a powerful thing to embrace and realize. Now, Mary has to get some clarification. Don't worry, I'll land the plane. Mary has to get some clarification in verse 34. She asks the angel, um, there's one problem. You know, Joseph and I, we haven't done anything, right? She's like, I haven't had sexual relations with the man. Now, What's interesting about this question is it immediately made me think of Zechariah's question. It immediately took me back to the text prior, like, well, Zechariah questioned. Now, we know because we pre-read this that Gabriel's going to tell Mary, here's kind of what's going to happen, but in a very sensitive way, just says, like, this is, this is the best way to describe it. The Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. He gives her an answer to her question. Zechariah gets struck blind. Like, yeah, if I identify with a character here, who am I going to identify with, right? I ask God a question, ah! You know, but here's the difference of what happens between the two. Mary was puzzled. It's pretty clear in the text if you look at it in context. She's puzzled by it. Zechariah was unbelieving. Because that's exactly what Gabriel says to him. Here's what's going to happen because you didn't believe me. He answers Mary's question and never says she didn't believe him. She's just puzzled by it. There's a difference. You know what the best part is? God still blessed Zechariah too. Not only does he bless Mary, but he blesses Zechariah too. He says, okay, there's going to be a little darkness for you for a while. Or not darkness, but mute. He can't speak. Sorry, I'm saying blind. I'm not saying blind. It's mute. He's like, you're not going to be able to talk for a while. You're going to go mute. All the scholars are like, why is he saying blind? It's mute. I don't know. People get struck blind in the Bible too, you know. But here's the thing. He goes mute. And so you think about the situations, and even though there was a punishment, God still blessed Zechariah. And you see Zechariah come around and say, you're not going to name him after me. You're going to name him the name that God has said he would be named. Zechariah learns his lesson. There's grace there too. Gabriel's answer to Mary's puzzlement is, is beautiful. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. And then he points out Elizabeth. Consider your relative Elizabeth. Even she's conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month for her who was called childless, with the Holy Spirit as the agent of conception. And Joseph, having not yet been intimate with her, there's no mistake that the child that will be born is the Messiah, is the Christ. The sinless life of Jesus in human flesh began right here. Before the incarnation, he was sinless and in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. But 
within the womb of Mary, his physical life as a human being was going to begin. And he was going to be dependent now. Isn't that weird? That the all-powerful God is going to be dependent on a human being for nourishment, for protection, to grow. That that physical journey would take him all the way to the cross eventually. That his physical journey, even though it began in this amazing, joyful way, would lead him intentionally to the cross. What a life that he would lead. To prove his statement, in verse 37, Gabriel, even though Mary didn't ask for one, gives her a sign. Elizabeth has conceived in her old age. He says, do you want, let me give you a sign. He's like, consider Elizabeth. She's pregnant. And that would be a shocking thing to hear. We gain that from Zechariah. Wait, what? I'm too old. Buy it. But Elizabeth, <laughs> that was, I, I thought it was funny. But like, <laughs> Gabriel gives her like, <laughs> Elizabeth's conceived in her old age. Whether she was an aunt or a cousin of Mary, we don't know for sure. They're related somehow. The two are related. And she was like, Elizabeth? Wow. But Mary's given a reminder that Gabriel tells her in verse 37 that summarizes this whole situation. The conceiving of Christ within her body, the the ability of Zachariah and Elizabeth to have this child in their old age, it's all summarized with verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. I love that verse. And I love it especially because it's rooted in the Old Testament. That statement is rooted in Genesis 18, 14, when the Lord tells Sarah that even in her old age, she will have a son. Is anything impossible for the Lord, he says? Don't say it's impossible when God says it will be done. He says this, at the appointed time, I will come back to you. This is the Lord speaking to Sarah. In about a year, she's going to have a son. You'll have a baby boy. I think a lot of times we chuckle at God when he tells us what he's going to do, much like Sarah, and then we lie about it. Right? The Lord's talking with Abraham. Sarah's going to have a son, just like I promised you. She's over in the tent. Ah! God's like, why did Sarah laugh, Abraham? I don't know. Sometimes she laughs. I... I stop (laughs) but like you know it presents this situation where like isn't that us isn't that us when god's like i'm going to do this i'm going to take care of these things i'm going to do these things for you like i I really don't see how you're gonna get that done he's like stop saying it's impossible when i said i'm gonna do it you want to promise he who began a good work in you will forfeit it at the day of christ jesus that's a promise from scripture for us He has begun a good work in us and he will complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. If you feel like you're a mess and you always will be, that is a lie of the devil. If you entrust your life to Christ, if you continue to walk with him, he is going to complete the work that he started in you. He will bring you to completion. It does not matter how bleak it looks right now for nothing will be impossible with God. Nothing. What do we doubt that he can do? I'm not saying that you can go out and do whatever you want because that's what you want. 
I'm saying you can do whatever he has called you to do because he is faithful, and if he has called you to it, nothing is impossible for him. We need to remember the supernatural necessity within our lives, the work of God to work powerfully in ways that we can barely, if not, not at all comprehend. In a letter that he penned from Tegel Prison, 1943, before he was executed, Pastor Bonhoeffer wrote this. You get two quotes from Bonhoeffer today. It's a two-for-one deal, today only. Sorry, it's Black Friday weekend. I'm just like sales mode. Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, and does this, that, or the other. Things that are really of no consequence. The door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. Nothing is impossible with God. The door is shut, but it can only be opened from the outside. Here we are in this anticipation of the season. We're right back in this place where the door is shut and can only be opened from the outside. Only when the door is open from the outside will Christ return. It's in his time. It's not ours. Advent is a reminder that we are loved by and that we serve a God who does the impossible. Our right posture towards him when we see his gracious love and glory is to say, see, I am the Lord's servant. May it happen to me as you have said. Mary shows us the right posture to have in this season. We're your servants. Father, we're yours. Everything that you have said is going to happen. May it happen in my life. I'm all in for you, whatever you say. And when people say that's not possible, you just smile and say, nothing's impossible for my God. This is what he's told me to do. The first advent had come. A door that could only be opened by God had swung open that day in Nazareth. The Savior was going to come. The second advent is imminent. Will the Lord find his church ready for the door to swing open with the words on our lips? Lord, we're your servants. May everything happen just as you have said. That's the desire. That's the goal. Invite the worship team up. Could we bow our heads together? And I want to pray for us that this Advent season would be unique. That the Lord wouldn't find within us any unbelieving hearts, but that He would comfort our doubts. That He would allay our fears. Father, as we sing Your praises, Lord, this song that we're going to sing Um, coming out of this message. Lord, it's a response based off of Mary's song that she's going to sing to you shortly in this text. It's a powerful thing for us to remember, God, that you have done such, such great things for us. You've overwhelmed us with your kindness and your goodness. God, we get so focused. I know that I do. Maybe I shouldn't say we. Maybe it's just me. But Lord, I know that I, I focus so often on 
what's not going right. What I wish was happening rather than what you're doing. And so, Lord, I pray that I would just grow in this understanding and this trust of you that my faith would grow. And, Lord, I prayed over anyone in this room right now that just needs their faith to grow. Maybe the situation that is being presented to them right now feels impossible. But, Lord, it's what you have for them. It's what you've called them to do. God, would you show us how to trust you and put one foot in front of the other? to take steps of faith based off of who you are because you love us. Lord, we are your people. We belong to you. God, thank you for the reminder that you came to this earth. You've laid claim to us. You formed every single person in this room in the womb. And Jesus, that's something that you share with us. That's crazy to me that the God of the universe who created everything that we've ever seen knows what it's like to enter this world as a human being the same way that we do. There is no one like you. There is no God that compares to you or is even close. All other idols are worthless. It's just you. Let's keep our heads bowed. Let's keep our eyes closed. Just take a moment to focus your heart and your mind on Jesus, on the goodness of God.